This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. This next story, well, it's a part of our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And they're now making the return journey eastward, and our own Alex Cortez brings us our 39th feature on what happened during these exact days in history over 200 years ago. There are a few things that they still need to do. So on the, on the outbound journey, they're trying to find what Jefferson called the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. You're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. So Jefferson has told them to ascend from the mouth of the Missouri all the way to its source, and then to go up and over the intervening mountain range, then to find navigable waters of the Columbia Basin and take those to the sea. So that's their mission. And they do that. Uh, It's difficult, but they do it. But when they come to the mouth of the Yellowstone, which is a co-equal river, then they say, well, you, know, you could take that, you could take the Yellowstone. I wonder where that goes. Our mission is to take the Missouri, but this other branch is a big one. Maybe on the return journey, we ought to check that out and see maybe that's a better route there, because there are great falls on the Missouri, five of them. As Meriwether Lewis was still complaining about many months later. Our route can't possibly be much worse. Maybe there aren't any falls on the Yellowstone, so we'll, we'll check that out. And then they get to the mouth of the Marias, and the Marias looks as big as the Missouri. It was, must have been a high water year on the Marias. I go there every year, and, and no one would mistake it now. But they think, well, I wonder what's the main branch. And so they think, well, maybe we'll need to check that out, too. And third, they're looking for a northern tributary, so Jefferson has purchased the entire Louisiana Territory, which means the entire watershed of the Missouri River. And they know that if there's a northern tributary that starts from what we call Canada, that that will be our land too, and we're entitled to everything in the drainage. And so they're looking for a northern tributary, and they're thinking, I wonder if that's a river that starts in Canada, and then they find another one. Maybe that's the one. And so they're making these mental notes, and Lewis finally decides that the Marias, which he names after a cousin, is the most likely of the tributaries coming in from the north to penetrate into what's now Canada. So he puts that on his to-do list. When we come back, I'm going to check that out. So then when they get to Fort Clatsop, Clark makes his map, and he and Lewis sit down and puzzle it over, and they make this plan, this elaborate scheme right there. Captain Clark and myself concerted the following plan. From this place, I determined to go with a small party by the most direct route to the falls of the Missouri. When we get through the mountains again, we'll split up. You, Clark, will explore the Yellowstone. We'll have some subgroups to do a few of the other things. I, Lewis, will go up to the Great Falls, and from there, I'll ascend the Marias River to see if its source is in Canada. With a view to ascertain, whether any branch of that river lies as far north as latitude 50 degrees. In which case that will really be an important data point for Mr. Jefferson and our 
geopolitics. So these are all things that Lewis feels that they must ascertain in order to have really figured out the hydrology of the Missouri Basin and also to figure out what exactly the Louisiana Purchase consists in. And so that's why they do all of this. They wouldn't have split up otherwise, and Lewis feels uneasy about the splitting up, but he knows that the scientific mission will not be complete unless they do some of these sort of subsidiary things that they didn't have the leisure to do on the outbound journey. I now called for the volunteers to accompany me on this route. Many turned out. And everyone's going to be floating downstream uh, in one way or another, and we'll all gather at the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Missouri sometime in the fall or late summer. That's their only plan. So this is a really kind of wild plan. No walkie-talkies, no cell phones no way to communicate with each other. So once they split, uh, they're leaving a lot to chance and assuming that everyone's going to be able to make essentially the same forward progress and arrive at more or less the same time at the rendezvous point. And so it's so interesting to look at the two captains' journals. Clark says, well, all right, tomorrow we're heading out. We're going to bushwhack over the mountains and find the Yellowstone and we're going to build some boats and we're going to float down the Yellowstone. Uh, to its mouth. And there's a kind of a matter-of-fact pragmatism to Clark's writing about this. And Lewis says, you know, I, I couldn't help but feel a little anxious here. I took leave of my worthy friend and companion, Captain Clark. I could not avoid feeling much concern on this occasion. Although I hope this separation was only momentary. To think that we're splitting up in this way and without any particular certainty about when we will gather back together. So I, I find that very interesting. The Clark is nonchalant. You can read his account of this and there's not the slightest expression of concern or anxiety. It's routine. It's, it's the mission. We'll perform it. Everything will work out. And Lewis, who's the commander of the expedition, and really the master of woodland travel, Lewis is, is a little off his sense of confidence, and he's, he's worried. Well, you know, this will probably work out, but I felt a little uneasy at this parting. Well, his premonition is the right one. As you'll have to find out next episode. And great work, as always, to Alex Cortez. And thanks, as always, to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, Jefferson deserves it. The Lewis and Clark story, the most epic road trip ever, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And every year, more than 500,000 middle and high school students compete in something called National History Day, a worldwide competition that encourages the study of history. Students create an original history project of their choice, and 3,000 of them advance to the national competition at the University of Maryland. We sent our Hillsdale intern, Monty Montgomery, there to talk with Kathy Gorn, the head of National History Day, and many of the competing students. Here's Kathy. I'm Kathy Gorn. I'm the executive director of National History Day, and this is my 37th year with the program. I started as a graduate student way back in 1982. The theme that year was turning points in history, and it was the turning point of my life and my career. When I saw my first competition and I saw what these kids could do and how it changed what teachers do in the classroom, I just knew I had found my cause. You know, just kind of how do you go about doing history rather than memorizing history? For students, National History Day does quite a number of things. First, obviously, it helps them learn history, which is really critical for understanding who we are, where we've came from, etc. But it also teaches them some really important skills because it requires that they do research. So they learn how to go out and dig for information. It teaches them how to look at the information and critically analyze it. So think about the information in a substantive way, not just gather it and then describe it because we don't want kids describing their topic, we want them to tell us why it's important. That's what gets kids excited. I mean, that's what gets historians excited, is to, you know, as the kids do at History Day, they go into the archives and they open up those gray boxes and the documents come out and it's, you know, it sends chills up your spine. It's so cool. I'm Andres Chavez and I'm here for the National History Day competition and I'm doing a group performance on prohibition. I've been very interested in the 1920s and the Roaring Twenties because a group a couple years back, they did a group on Roy Olmsted. It was a Fourth Amendment case regarding search and seizure and he felt like his rights were violated. And seeing that project inspired me and made me have a passion for the 1920s. We found a perspective of the government. Um, in 1926, they added uh, methanol into industrial alcohol and it killed about 10,000 Americans over time. It was an unintended tragedy because morally what they were trying to do was stop people from drinking and thought the death toll wouldn't be as high as it was. I, in total, have three roles. I start off as a man on the street spreading the news of prohibition, and then I am a seller. I would sell alcohol and grab the supplies, and then I end off as Dr. Charles Norris, one of the toxicologists who did it. Going into this, I just had a broad understanding of prohibition. Even though I was passionate about it, I never went in depth on looking into prohibition like I have now. And so getting to know this history and learning from it for the future is a really great aspect of it. Our job here at National History Day is not to create the next generation of historians necessarily, right? We have some who go on to be history teachers. We have some kids that go on to get PhDs and become academic historians. But our goal is that every young person studies the past in a substantive way and then has perspective. And then when they go out, no matter what they do, they understand that studying the past is important. It's great that we have students who go on to, into medicine or 
accounting or whatever they do. My name is Allison Tid and I'm from Maine. And my presentation is called Giving a Voice to Those Whose Voices Are Silenced, The Power of Forensics. Now first I want to do the history of like the evolution of forensic science, but forensic science is meant to like help people so that didn't make, it didn't make sense. So I wanted to talk about how when you apply it to like international disasters, how it can bring triumph out of tragedy. I'm pursuing anthropology and zoology with a focus in biological anthropology to become a forensic anthropologist eventually. I just love talking about my topic. I didn't think I was going to qualify from states to come here, but when I did, I just was excited to talk about it to more people because I love talking and learning about it. This year's topic is triumph and tragedy in history. So you can imagine we've got our share of uh, students who've chosen the, the obvious ones, the Titanic, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, and you know, middle school kids cannot resist jumping out of windows and places on fire and oh, I have to jump, you know. <laughs> but they're doing all kinds of interesting things and they're doing sometimes local and state history, which I really like because they're looking at their own backyards kind of coming to a better understanding of their place in history and their community's place. And then how does it connect to a broader movement or a more national history? Because, you know, nothing happens in isolation, so you've got to make those connections. It truly, I think, shows young people that we have a special place in this world and a special place in this nation. My name is Haley Nelson, I'm from Idaho. This is the Big Burn, which is a wildfire that happened in 1910 in Idaho. And it was really important because it was the first time people started to notice how impactful wildfires can be. And they started to make changes with uh, how they attacked wildfires and how they stopped them. And it started new uh, policies where they prevented and tried to raise awareness about fires and didn't let any burn, which really caused damage to forest fires across America because forests actually need fires to burn in order to rejuvenate the forest and keep away all the undergrowth that causes fires. And I really was interested in Idaho history because that's where I'm from and I wanted to do something about where I'm from. It took a long time. The research was the hardest part because you kind of have to go really local for something like this. So I had to spend a lot of time looking through uh, different primary sources and artifacts. At this point, I'm just so thankful to have made it this far and I feel like I'm winning if people just look at it and just understand that there's uh, important things about like every state. I learn something new every single year. These kids are amazing. And even when they choose some of the more popular topics, they'll find certain angles, you know, that you haven't thought about before. And I just love that. They're not all going to be winners, but they're all truly great, and they teach us something. That's one of my favorite stories. One year, some boys from Texas were doing a group performance, and the theme was liberty, rights, and responsibilities in history. And they were looking at five different presidents and the way they viewed their own rights and responsibilities given that time when they were president. So it was Washington, Lincoln, Wilson, FDR, and LBJ. And they're arguing with one another about what their responsibilities were, et cetera. And how are they doing that? 
because they weren't in the same time period. Well, they're all in heaven. And the kids had dry ice to make it look like, you know, they were up there in the clouds and they were dressed appropriately. FDR was in a wheelchair and the kid that played LBJ put a pillow in, in his pants so it looked like he had that pot belly. It was just wonderful and it was funny too, you know, so, so it was very enjoyable, but right on target. Now, here's the behind the scenes. Because they're from Texas, they went to the LBJ library to do research. They got an interview with Mrs. Johnson. Lady Bird was still alive at the time. And he's sitting there talking to her and they're, you know, being very polite and yes ma'am and you know, all dressed up and Lady Bird says, do you really think Lyndon is there? In heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and those, those poor boys were like, well, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Kids have a lot of really interesting research uh, experiences. The past can shed so much light on the troubles that we're facing right now. I think it can truly contribute to, you know, taking back some of this, this hatred and um, just, just people not wanting to talk to one another. And you study history, you begin to understand one another. And I think that's really important. And you've been listening to Kathy Gorn, and that's National History Day. 500,000 entrants, middle and high school students compete every year. And the national competition at the University of Maryland is where we were hearing from Kathy and Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern. Well, he brought us the story and my goodness, what a project. I love the idea of some of the local and state history, too. Listening to that young lady from Idaho talk about fires and controlled burns and saying that she just wanted people to understand a story about her place, too. And I love that Miss Gorn had said that local and state history, well, it connects people not only to their own backyards, but also connects those backyards to the broader nation. Because we're all one big country connected by town after town after town, and city after city after city, and story after story after story. Indeed, it's what we're doing here at Our American Stories and trying to do. By the way, if you have a child in school or you're a part of the PTA, bring this up with your principals, uh, and that's, my goodness, your students should be entering at the local school district level. NHD.org is the address for National History Day. NHD.org is the web address. National History Day stories from the University of Maryland here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Sports, history, arts, the culture, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll put them up on the air, and we're doing that just right now. And by the way, some of these stories are beautiful. Some of these stories are hard. Some are both, and I think this one is. And this one comes to us from one of our listeners in Des Moines, Iowa and at the home of the mighty WHO, one of the great heritage signals in this country. And it comes from Joy Neal Kidney. 
In World War II, her grandmother sent five sons to war. Only two, only two came home. Here, Joy shares how her family has honored these men. Neglected gravestones over Memorial Day. No flowers, no one to remember. This would never happen in our family. So I thought. Growing up, I knew that my mother's five brothers had served in World War II and that the three youngest had lost their lives. Their sepia-toned photographs, all in uniform, were a familiar part of our home. Those same pictures posed for decades on the chest of drawers in Grandma's house. I grew up with women who observed every decoration day, as it was called then. I could have asked for details about those young brothers, but knew the answers would bring tears, so I didn't. In fact, Memorial Day was a wonderful time for me as a child, as it meant an outing to the big town of Perry for lunch and shopping with Grandma, Mom, Sis Gloria, and Aunt Darlene. Either Mom or Darlene would pick up the other, both toting pails of pink peonies, coral bells, and blue iris from their own gardens. Carried in the trunk of the car, these spring blossoms were for the cemeteries. We'd drive the dusty gravel roads of Madison County, then the hills of Highway 25 to Grandma's house in Guthrie Center, where she would be waiting with her best flowers, including what she called little yellow buttons. Grandma's parents and some of her siblings are buried there at the Guthrie Cemetery, so we'd leave flowers there first to remember them before heading east to Panther Corner. Perry is a few miles north of where the old Panther store used to stand. We'd skirt Perry's downtown toward our main mission, Violet Hill Cemetery in the northeast corner of town. Grandma's husband is buried there and their three sons who were lost in the war. Or so I thought. The Wilson Stones are in the east section with stately evergreens. We three generations would solemnly deliver the flowers from the car to the Wilson Stones. Everything seemed hushed. Before the four names, Dale, Daniel, Claiborne J., and Clay Wilson, we'd secure metal vases with wires Mom had cut from coat hangers. Then we'd fill them with our pastel bouquets. How nice they look, Grandma would mention. I remember her shedding tears there only once. The mood lightened on the drive toward downtown. I don't remember what the grown-ups ate, but we young sisters were treated to hamburgers and Cokes in a real cafe east of the library. Then shopping and visiting. For young girls from an Iowa farm near the small town of Dexter, this day was a yearly treat. When it was time to start back home, we'd always drive by the old Wilson acreage, a mile south on 16th Street. Grandma and her daughters always wanted to see how it looked after so many years and how much the trees had grown that they had planted in the 1940s. Through the decades, different family members would make that annual Memorial Day trip to Perry with Grandma. One or two of Aunt Darlene's sons went along, and later on, even my own young son. Grandma died in 1987, leaving a cedar chest full of old postcards, letters, pictures, 
and the terrible telegrams. After Mom and Aunt Darlene relived the war by reading through them, they shared them with me. I realized for the very first time that only their youngest brother, Junior, is buried in the Perry Cemetery. Danny Wilson, a P-38 pilot who was killed in action in Austria, is buried in France. Dale Wilson, the co-pilot on a B-25, was lost off the coast of New Guinea with his crew. Only God knows where their remains lie. I was determined that when Mom and Aunt Darlene, who is Dale's twin, got to the place that they could no longer make the trip to Perry to remember their brothers and parents for Memorial Day, I'd always get it done. So I thought. My health got to the place where I could no longer make the trip. One day, my husband and I stopped by just to see the stones once more. I realized that because Dale's official date of death is listed as 1946, months after the war ended, no one would understand that he'd been a war casualty. A few additions to all three stones would tell more of the story of what this one family had endured. Mom and Darlene agreed, and the information was added. One stone commemorates Dale and Danny, making clear that they were both killed in action. The center stone marks the grave of Junior, whose P-40 exploded in formation training in Texas in August 1945 at the very end of the war. The brothers were aged 22, 21, and 20. Their father, Clay, died next year of a stroke and a broken heart, surely another casualty of the war. Even though no family members have recently remembered the Wilsons for Memorial Day, the price that our freedoms cost this one Dallas County family must never be forgotten. And it's not forgotten here, Joy. And thanks for that piece. And Danny, Dale, and Junior, the sacrifices won't be forgotten. And here in our American stories, we don't forget. That's what we do here. As often as we can, bring back history to life. Because it's still alive, folks, and it matters. These stories matter. You know, it brings to mind the Sullivan brothers. I've been reading about them recently. All five boys in that family died in World War II. They were all on the same ship, the USS Juno. And on November 13, 1942, it was torpedoed down off the coast of the Solomon Islands by a Japanese destroyer. 687 sailors on board, 100 went into the water. Only 10 survived the elements and shark attacks. And it also brings to mind a personal story, my own family story, a story my mom told me, and I have her brother's Purple Heart. And boy, the way they printed out Purple Hearts in World War II... It was the summer of 44, and my mom remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The men stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that building, and several had loved ones who would volunteer to fight. Her brother John was one of them. He signed up when he was 18, and he paratrooped behind enemy lines right around the time of D-Day. She told me she felt terrible, praying that it would be someone else's door those men knocked on. And then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. She was 13. She told me she never heard her mom cry so hard when those men knocked on that door. 
Her mom didn't need to open it to comprehend the news. Her dad barely cried, but she never again saw him enjoy his life. He'd lost not just his son, but his only son, my mom told me. He'd lost his bloodline. And so here in our American stories, we celebrate the fallen soldiers and we honor their sacrifices and all of the men and women serving our country in uniform here and abroad. This is Our American Stories, Joy, Neil, Kidney's family story. So many other family stories, families whose sons, daughters, loved ones, fathers, husbands paid the ultimate price. stories and we return to energy entrepreneur Chris Wright and his remarkable commencement address a story in the end about energy coal was the first major source of energy beyond biomass it powered the spread of the industrial revolution and by the middle of the 19th century it became a meaningful contributor to total world energy consumption Oil became significant 50 years later as automobiles and the internal combustion engine burst on the scene. Before long, oil enabled high-speed mass transportation to spread across the globe. Natural gas didn't become a major source of energy until after World War II as it required a large pipeline network to transport it. These three hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and gas, have supplied over 80% of the U.S. and world energy during my lifetime. Nuclear, hydro, and biomass have supplied almost all of the rest. Today, there is a resurgence of interest in solar, wind, and geothermal, which combined provide about 2% of world energy. My choice of college was impacted by my desire to work on harnessing fusion energy, the energy source of the sun, and all the stars. In graduate school, I worked on solar energy, and afterwards I worked on geothermal energy for a few years. There are many potential sources of future energy. However, improving our current energy portfolio is much harder than most appreciate. The biggest energy transformation during my career has not been from a new energy source, but instead, within the realm of hydrocarbons. American entrepreneurship, innovation, and determination launched the American shale revolution that has radically altered the American and world energy landscapes over the past 10 years. The shale revolution was simply a different way to execute hydraulic fracturing in older technology and advancements in drilling technologies to tap oil and gas from the source rocks where oil and gas was originally created. This recent revolution has been transformative 
Natural gas now heats over half of U.S. homes and provides nearly 40% of our electricity. Two years ago, it surpassed coal as our largest source of electricity. It is the dominant fuel powering factories and a major feedstock for petrochemicals and nitrogen fertilizer. A surge in the supply of American natural gas not only dramatically lowered energy costs for U.S. consumers, but it is also launching a renaissance in U.S. manufacturing due to our tremendous energy cost advantage over all other industrial countries. The U.S. has now become a net exporter of natural gas. In fact, the third largest exporter of natural gas in the world. Quite a reversal of fortune, as only a decade ago, we were building multi-billion dollar terminals to import natural gas into the United States. Now these terminals export natural gas. The shale revolution's impact on oil markets has been even more profound. U.S. dependence on oil imports dropped from 60% 12 years ago to 15% and falling today. The more than doubling in U.S. oil production over the last eight years has made the United States the largest producer of liquid fuels, oil plus natural gas liquids, and has supplied roughly 80% of the growth in demand for oil globally over the last five years. The result of a surge in supply is inevitably a price drop, and this has been no exception. Over the last three years, oil prices have averaged about $50 a barrel versus $90 a barrel in the five years before that. Since the U.S. consumes over 6 billion barrels of oil per year, that equates to a quarter of a trillion dollar savings to U.S. consumers every year. Worldwide, the result has been a trillion dollar annual wealth transfer from oil producers to oil consumers each year, each of the last three years. How can I celebrate the consumer savings when I'm an oil producer? Good question. In a market economy, the primary beneficiaries of innovation are always consumers. I applaud the improved standard of living that comes with cheaper energy, particularly for lower income folks. We producers have to compete hard to share some small part of the gains from technology. We are indeed fighting hard these days. Likely the prices of oil and gas have overshot on the downside during the downturn. But a new equilibrium appears to have been arrived with oil prices still far lower than they were in the five years before the energy downturn. The energy business has always been cyclical and always will be. It is exciting and it is meaningful, but we are forced to live with cyclicality. Enough on energy markets. Today, fossil fuels are viewed by some as the enemy of the environment. But is that true? The United Kingdom is quite wet and lush. It is, after all, the land of Robin Hood Sherwood Forest. Yet over 85% of the land is barren of tree cover. Why? Because coal arrived too late to save the United Kingdom forests. But it did arrive in time to save the forests of continental Europe, 
and together with oil and gas, the forests of the United States. Fortunately, oil drilling, which began in Pennsylvania in 1859, arrived just in time to save the whale population, which was being rapidly decimated to supply the cleaner burning whale oil that was displacing candles and coal for indoor lighting. Nearly a thousand whaling ships were trawling all four oceans of the world because of the impact this clean lighting fuel had. Kerosene saved the remaining whales and the whale population has surged in the last 150 years. I'm reminded of those prophetic words nearly 200 years ago from the eminent English historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, who said, We cannot absolutely prove that those are in error who say that society has reached a turning point, that we have seen our best days. But so said all who came before us, and with just as much apparent reason. On what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? Of course, we have many challenges today with energy and society as a whole, and we are sure to have new challenges tomorrow. But the future sure looks bright to me, particularly as I look out at this group of energetic leaders. Go forth, meet these challenges. Congratulations and best of luck to you all. And what great storytelling. And again, that was a commencement speech, but it was a story, folks. And make no mistake about it, it was a story about modern life, the story of energy. And that was Chris Wright at the University of Colorado's Denver campus and the Global Energy Management Program. There are so many things our people of this great country do for a living. And we love to talk about their work because it's important. And the people who work in the energy field, my goodness, the work they do matters. It powers the nation, empowers what we do, where we drive, how we transport our loved ones, and so much more. And so again, thanks to Chris Wright. And this is the storytelling you will not get at college or high school or anywhere else. But it's the kind of storytelling we do here on this show. Chris Wright's story, the story of energy and the modern world, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Tiffany Johnson and her husband, JJ, two self-proclaimed vacation junkies, were on the last stop of their fourth cruise snorkeling in the Bahamas when a shark attack changed her life forever. Tiffany remembers every second of the attack. Here she is with her husband, JJ, to tell their story. So my husband and I, we loved to cruise. We were on a cruise last June, and um, we went snorkeling. 
and uh, he went back to the boat. He wasn't feeling well, and I was out there just enjoying God's creation under the water, and I felt like I had bumped into something. Uh, and when I turned, I was face to face with a shark, and he had my whole arm in his mouth. We were just staring at each other, like time stood still. Um, and I started to have all these thoughts. I felt like my body was like giving in, like a, a release almost, like giving up. Um, but the strength of the Lord just came out from inside me and it gave me the strength to fight. And I remember thinking, no, you are not gonna take my life. I am not gonna die here. I kept yanking and finally his, his jaws opened. My arm kind of just flew out and I remember it was just gone, like a mangled stump. And that was the, the thought that went through my mind was, oh my gosh, my arm's gone. I pulled off my snorkel mask and I screamed out, help, help me Jesus. And that's when I hear Tiff scream. And she screamed, help me, help me Jesus. And I remember looking at her, half of her right arm was gone. And it's just mangled, you know, mangled stump. And I see blood everywhere, all around her. I screamed baby and I jumped off the boat after her. And the first thing that I heard her doing was praying. My husband, he turned, and the, the look on his face, I will never forget. It was just sheer terror. And he said later that it, it was as if he was in a horror movie because all he sees is blood literally saturating around the waters. He sees my arm is just severed, and I'm swimming back. And then he kind of pushed me up onto the boat. The captain grabbed my left arm, and I landed in the boat. And the minute I hit that boat, the peace of the Lord just surrounded me like a cloud. It was like a tangible presence. I could feel him all over me. And I, of course, was urgent, but I, I wasn't panicking. I wasn't crying. I didn't lose consciousness. I just looked at my husband and I said, give me something to stop the bleeding. I just laid my head on his lap and I just began to pray in the Holy Spirit, praying for my husband to give him strength. And I prayed for my kids. I prayed in that boat that God would use this for his glory. That was the only time that I felt like, oh my gosh, my, my wife could die on me. I remember making phone calls to her immediate family, my immediate family, telling them what happened, just to pray for her. So I was just praying that the Lord would just heal my wife, that she would be okay, that she was going to make it through this. In the hospital, I had a four to five hour surgery, and then I was still in critical care out of surgery, and they told my husband that I needed to see an American doctor immediately because there was only so much they could do. But yet th there was no way for me to get back immediately because the U.S. Embassy was closed. It was a national holiday. It happened on a Friday. That was a holiday. They're always closing on the weekend and then they were closed on Monday for an extended holiday. So they told us it is literally impossible. We've checked every avenue, customs, U.S. Embassy, tourism, Ministry of Tourism, all these different people involved. You, there's no way for you to get back until Tuesday. And I remember looking at my husband and saying, no, 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 God, God knows how to move the mountains and I trust that he's got something better than this. And so we're just gonna stand in agreement that he's gonna move these mountains. And um, we had a, a, our pastor back in Charlotte, he started reaching out to people that he knew and they, they, they had a, a contact of somebody that used to do private pilot um, for charter planes. and. He got a hold of her. Well, now she works for a medvac company out of Charlotte. And so she started working on it. And she 
contacted the guy in Nassau that is a medvac company in Nassau, and the only reason they know each other is because he has a fiance that lives in Charlotte, and they had made contact two months prior because he thought, you know, if something ever happens, I should probably get to know these Charlotte medvac people. Two months before it happened, the guy in Nassau um, actually ended up paying for our trip. Um, it was 16 grand, and in in our insurance wasn't going to cover it because we couldn't get a hold of him ahead of time to get pre-approval. And he told us we didn't owe him a penny, that he would take care of it. And uh, he was, we didn't know him. He was a complete stranger. And so God was using so many different people to bless us and show us his love in the midst of it. It was just amazing. We're just, we're trying to establish our new normal and that even though it's been a year, it's still, you know, every day making that choice to choose joy and choose peace instead of uh, getting frustrated in the circumstance. I just had this surrendering moment of just healing, you know, in my, in my soul and that connection of just saying, God, you're good regardless, you know, I'm not going to let this stop my relationship with you. In fact, I'm going to let it deepen it. You know, it was like this moment of just, I know who I am and I know that he's called me to use this. And so it was that surrender of just use it, God, however you see fit. And that's exactly what's happened. It's been amazing, the opportunities we've gotten. I've been able to speak the name of Jesus and witness through my testimony. And it doesn't feel like witnessing, it doesn't feel like I'm preaching, but I am because I'm sharing God's story. And you can't deny the miracles and the God in my story. And so it's been just what an opportunity that he's given us to share it. I've just been so humbled, you know, by just the opportunities that he's given us. He could have done it another way, but he allowed me the privilege and the honor to see him use every piece of this and to see lives completely changed because of what happened to me. There's just no words for that. And I'm just so thankful um, that I get to be a part of that journey. And what a remarkable story and what a voice. And by the way, you heard her referencing her God. And while some of our stories, people don't have a God, and sometimes they do, and when they do, we don't edit it out here on Our American Stories. We've heard such good feedback from believers and non-believers about that, our respect for all American stories and all American lives. And by the way, Tiffany's focus now is on making sure her kids are okay with the new normal. And she said that that was the hardest part about coming home as a mom, was to be able to make sure that well, that she could take care of her kids and not have any limitations. And she said, they don't really care, my kids. They just keep saying, we love you, Mama. Tiffany Johnson's story and her husband JJ's here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love talking about everything here on this show and telling stories about everything and every once in a while we love bringing you a really good commencement address and a fan of this show named Chris Wright had the opportunity to actually give one of these addresses. Chris is an energy entrepreneur. He gave a speech at the University of Colorado at Denver and their global energy management program and we found his speech so powerful that we asked him to record it for us. 
Here's Chris. The story of energy is quite simple. It is the story of freedom. Freedom from backbreaking toil. What does a human spirit freed from toil create? Our world, the modern world. It is an honor to be here today with you, the very soon to be graduates, when other aspects of your life were screaming for your time and energy, you juggled it all and finished your degree. You all decided that the trade-offs required would be worth it for you. But the additional factor that you may not have considered as much is that not only will you be better off, but humanity will be better off. The plight of humanity has always and everywhere been intimately tied with the availability and cost of energy. Before I say more about the ties between humanity and energy, I will say a few words about three scientists. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, and James Clerk Maxwell, in my opinion, the three greatest scientists of all time. They all had towering intellects, but the world has been blessed with many towering intellects. What sets Newton, Einstein, and Maxwell apart is that they chose to focus their efforts on critical problems. Problems that, if solved, would profoundly impact human understanding of the physical world. In the late 1600s, Newton took scientific discovery to a whole new level. Newton's laws of motion explained why an apple falls from a tree, why water flows downhill, why the planets orbit around the sun, why the oceans have tides. To explain these phenomena, he had to invent a new mathematical tool, calculus. Many students, including my daughter, are not too happy about that invention. Nonetheless, calculus is an essential tool of modern science, engineering, economics, and business. Newton's insights explain water wheels, windmills, dams, and steam engines, among countless others. James Clerk Maxwell's most important contribution was developing a set of four equations published in 1865, now called Maxwell's Equations. They describe electromagnetic fields. Think light, electricity, electric power, generation, the internet, cell phones, GPS, etc. Can you imagine a world without these things? Forty years later, in 1905, Albert Einstein had a big year. In that single year, he published four papers that each represented a huge step in human understanding. One paper explained the photoelectric effect, the basis of solar power. Another, E equals mc squared, formed the basis of nuclear power. Another, on the atomic theory of matter, and the fourth, was that relativity thing. Quite a year for a 26-year-old inspector at the Zurich Patent Office. It is no coincidence that all three of these scientists worked in the field of energy. If you impact energy, you impact human lives. You have all chosen to impact energy. Less than 200 years ago, in our country, life expectancy was only about 40 years. Globally, life expectancy was about 35 years. 
2,000 years ago, global life expectancy is thought to have been a little more than 30 years. Only a few years at most were added to the average human lifespan over many millennia. But somehow, we have added an additional four decades to human life expectancy over the last two centuries. Why? How? Of course, there are many reasons, and public health advancements were likely the most critical proximate cause. But why did those advancements only occur so recently? What was the ultimate cause? I believe that there were two major ultimate causes. First and foremost, the dramatic expansion of individual liberty and property rights in the first half of the 19th century. Expanded individual liberty and property rights replaced mercantilism, a system where kings, queens, governments tightly controlled the granting of corporate charters to only the wealthy, connected, and favored. Mercantilism was replaced with a system where citizens could more freely and equally engage in commerce. This newfound freedom unleashed human enterprise, innovation, and creativity like never before. Most famously in the rapid spread of the steam engine, pioneered in the previous century by Thomas Newcomen, and James Watt, to power water pumps, textile machinery, and trains. For the first time in human history, the standard of living of the average person began to consistently grow, and by now has increased in the developed world by roughly 25-fold since 1840, 10-fold globally. Humans not only doubled their life expectancy, they also became dramatically wealthier and freer. We are all quite lucky to be living today and not 200 years ago. For economic freedom and human liberty to bear fruit, one other factor had to be present. Energy, and lots of it. Before these dramatic changes in property rights and human liberty unleashed economic growth, nearly all human energy was supplied by biomass. This meant the burning of trees, sticks, grass, and dung, a rather limited energy source that could never power the Industrial Revolution. Something much vaster, denser, and more uniform would be needed to power machines. Coal was the first to fit the bill, and the rest is history. Sadly, biomass remains the primary source of energy today for over a billion humans who still lack access to electricity, and nearly another billion who have only unreliable electricity. Burning biomass not only provides warmth, but it is critical for cooking food. Unfortunately, pollution from indoor burning of wood, grass, and dung kills roughly 3 million people per year. Together with hunger, lack of access to clean drinking water, and malaria, these four killers are responsible for 15 million deaths per year. Bringing affordable energy to the world's poor will be essential to eradicating these four scourges. Advancements in energy have made the modern world possible. From planes, trains, and automobiles, to computers, the internet, modern medicine, and wireless communication. 
abundant, cheap energy powered air conditioning, which enabled cities to develop in the tropics. Energy allowed modern medicine to spread across the globe. And perhaps most relevant to this room, energy enabled widespread higher education, like University of Colorado's Global Energy Management Program. The British intellectual and author, Matt Ridley, gives a very fitting example of how advancements in energy and technology have revolutionized something fundamental to education, the reading light. In 1800, it took the average person six hours of labor to earn one hour of reading light from a tallow candle. How rare bedtime stories must have been back then. By 1880, two decades after the first oil well was drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania, kerosene lamps lowered this by 24-fold to only 15 minutes of labor to earn one hour of reading light. However, that was still a rather significant investment for the average worker. Today, it requires the average worker only a small fraction of a second of labor to earn an hour of reading light. The excuse that I couldn't finish my assignment because I ran out of reading light simply no longer works. And what great storytelling, and that's why we love doing this show, folks, bringing voices like this, stories like this, that don't get taught in school. Heck, they don't get taught anywhere. And they are the truth. You're nodding in your cargo. My goodness, that's right. That makes sense. When we come back, more of this commencement speech, Chris Wright's story about energy, his own story, really, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling so good so spiritually good that we must take the time to sit back close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art Cairo, Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, 
to the Yasen Pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop the pootie from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect, and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years. Um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement of my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in uh, in media, and all of us in the group are are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per perfect little niche for that. 
So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So, um, yeah, over 14,000 copies. We, we hope to, we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years and, um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space. They're, I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie? And where did they even come from? So the Jerry Maguire's was it was really just the uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think the, there there are many many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire and VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot to, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly called them, um, We've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them, and the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's 
so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the pyramid. We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's. And uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry McGuire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about Everything is Terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. (laughs) Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's myself. So is the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. A lot more of them. This is Our American Stories, although you may not know what auto-tuning is, there's no doubt that you've heard it. In fact, you just did, with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow. Auto-tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off-pitch. Is this new music technology a good or a bad thing? And is it really new? Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Autotune has become the Botox of pop music. But like the commonly used neurotoxin, could autotuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look. Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the Sonovox. Harry Babbitt, using special Sonovox units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! Here's music writer Dave Tompkins. Like we always have this attraction from, from an early age at altering our voices. I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party. And, and here's a way to um, explore different characters and 
What's more human than wanting to be something else? Here's musician Ben Harper. More bounce to the ounce. I mean, when that dropped, driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Marvin Gaye or Roger Troutman? Can't miss. Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, hook it up to a, an electrical charge, and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice, through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat, was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. After an hour of recording with that thing, it heard. So now they have what's called auto-tune, and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it, and is equally as cool. The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune debate. Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father. Uh, hey, Dad. I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, Lord sounds like a girl. Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it? I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts. Give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's music is actually really good. Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah, yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer, I can actually quantize everything. Feeling good, feeling good. Backup instruments. And then finally, I use the auto tune. Sparkling thoughts, feeling good on a Wednesday. Stan. Here's Hall of Fame singer songwriter and record producer Linda Perry. Would you auto tune Patti Smith? No. Carol King? No. Janis Joplin? Oh my God. She, if they put auto tune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that belief. And you know that's where that came from. That sound came from, and I love Cher, but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went, and they were like, what is that? That's cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang. What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip-hop artists they discover they actually really like the sound of auto-tune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural. One of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West. I'm not loving you way I wanted to. Here's musician Bonnie Ray. There's something great about not fixing stuff. You know, I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll tune it back up, and it just loses a lot of what the edge to it. Here again is Ben Harper. Now that auto-tune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means, it's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales. Here again is Linda Perry. 
There's not a lot of Christinas. That woman can sing. And she can change her voice and do so many wonderful things with it. Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble when she tries to perfect the vocal. Troubled waters there, but when Christina just sings, As soon as she said, don't look at me, I heard it. The vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that, oh, she really doesn't think she's all that. Every day is so wonderful suddenly. It's letting go of ego and being open to failing. Now and then I get insecure. The beautiful thing about that version is when Christina sang it it was just it it was emotional that was the take that I knew right that that was the master take I added the drums and everything after the fact and Christina kept on coming to me I gotta re-sing that you know when can I re-sing that I'm like re-sing it are you crazy this is Magical, like people would die for this emotion. So, don't you bring me down so she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not going to re-sing it. It's like seven months of this. Like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up, and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, she's, I mean, we're like maybe a minute into the song, if even that. I just stopped and I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already you're over singing, you're over perfecting, and you're ruining this song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean? God, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? I don't understand this form of perfection. And then I finally realized there is no perfection. It's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful. It's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're going to get everything right because that's what the true beauty of life is. It's about not really getting it right. It's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now. Certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees, soul isn't, soulfulness isn't. There's such a huge, great soulful place for technology and music. There is, but there is a place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle. Every generation of people who listen and write and, and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are almost 100 years later, and 
If you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music and all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find the things that stand out to us as being unique. The ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and, and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart. We don't really judge a vocal on an intellectual level. What we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer-songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. But we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic. For our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler. Great job as always, Greg. And well, you haven't heard that one before because I hadn't. Auto tune versus imperfection. The story of music in a way and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org.